This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And Ben, this week our mayor was the focus of a New York Times editorial about his relationship with the press. Um, neither you nor I are qualified to psychoanalyze anybody, but let's do it anyway. Okay. Why do you think the mayor seems so comfortable on the Brian Lehrer show, in the town halls, taking questions from the general public? He really seems to like that. He does well at it. But he has, from day one, been so uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable around those of us who make our living asking people questions. Well, I think a lot of times the tone of the questions is different. And I think, you know, I think the mayor early on sort of felt that he wasn't being treated fairly and he got pretty stuck in that sense. He felt like the media focuses only on negative things. Um, he feels like when he's in front of the press corps, he gets the same question, but six different ways or 10 different ways from, you know, the 20 members of the media gathered at his press conferences. And I think he got frustrated about that. It only heightened when he was under these investigations. And there were so many questions about those that, um, you know, he'd rather sort of do his part to take questions from everyday New Yorkers who don't ask him about the investigations and don't ask him about conflicts of interest for the most part. I don't think he's gotten a single question at 20 town halls about that stuff. So he's sort of right in the different focus, but he's wrong in that, um, you know, the role of the media is to hold him accountable, not to always just highlight sort of positive things that he's doing. What's, what's your sense? Yeah, I, I think I share that. And I think, you know, the important thing to note is that, and the Times said this, is that this is more than a, um, this is more than simply a, a operational issue for people like you and me. Um, if you're a mayor who believes in transparency, and the mayor says he does, and I think you know, there, there's evidence that he does, um, this is part of it. Transparency isn't just what you are willing to share, um, what you want to put on topic, what you want to release from, through NYC Open Data, but opening yourself up to uncomfortable, annoying, um, poorly phrased, repetitive questions. Uh, it sucks. Every mayor has said it sucks. Um, but something about his particular way of handling it I think the word petulant was what the Times used, right. really seems to have struck people who, longer than you or I have been in it, have been doing this stuff and, and talking to mayors about it. Right. I think, you know, the the mayor, um, you don't get to be mayor of New York City without having sort of a very strong sense of yourself and a lot of confidence in yourself and what you're doing and, you know, maybe borderline on arrogance at times or fully blown into that category. And so I think, you know, we see a lot coming through that, hey, this is what I want to talk about. I don't really care that much about what you want to talk about, but I'm going to give you 20 minutes press corps to ask your bevy of questions because I know that sort of that's part of my responsibility as mayor. And he's sort of trying to toe that line. He's saying, OK, I do these other two weekly shows and then I take constituent questions, which is a very different kind of accountability, but he sort of lumps those together. Um, but, you know, they've they've also moved towards this sort of like new media approach. They've just really gotten going um, their account on Medium, the website where they're putting out their own um, narrative on things, you know, more videos, more social media. They have a new communications director from a few months ago that used to work for Bernie Sanders. You know, so they've been trying to sort of head in this direction of direct communication with constituents and bypassing the, the City Hall press corps, sort of saying that that's something of a vestige uh, of the past. Um, but what the mayor, I think, from my perspective, being at a lot of these press conferences, what the mayor doesn't quite seem to get is that by limiting 
the exposure, the questions wind up being a really concentrated, tough group of questions as opposed to sort of diluting that a bit where like members of the media wouldn't feel so much pressure to really ask him every time like the toughest question they have for him. Right, right. The, the question is obviously, you know, Rudy Giuliani uh, was very rude to the press sometimes. Michael Bloomberg once went 10 rounds with the guy over what the word maintain means. Mm-hmm. They were all reelected, both reelected several times, you know, by astounding uh, margins. And so one question, obviously, for the mayor and for those of us who cover him is, you know, this this could seem like an inside baseball issue. Does it translate when we look at the mayoral race where despite a lot of bad headlines, every week the mayor seems to kind of close off more and more opportunities for any possible opponent to uh, to possibly unseat him or even make him uncomfortable. Yeah, I, he's in very good shape right now. I mean, we're talking third week in April here. He's in very good shape, obviously, having been cleared in the investigations. Um, a bunch of Democrats who are considering it don't seem to be jumping into the fray. Uh, he's in good shape. Um, but, you know, I think even among sort of folks who, let's say, not the everyday New Yorker who isn't watching closely, but, you know, the people who listen to Brian Lehrer, who watch Road to City Hall and New York One, you know, I think there is this sense that he doesn't like answering press questions. And I think a lot of times New Yorkers sort of, you know, they want their mayor to be tough and to mix it up. And I think, you know, there is some impression, it's hard to say how much, that that seeps into even not just sort of the inside baseball, but people have this impression of him as sort of like ducking the media. And the more that the New York Times editorial board writes about it or their stories in a bunch of publications, I think it takes its toll in sort of people's impression of him. Generally speaking, though, I mean, you know, I think he's in strong position. How would you sort of assess what oh, he's yeah, in? I mean, I am surprised at how strong he is given the bad headlines and given some of the weaknesses, I think, especially because, as you and I have said before, he often doesn't get a lot of public credit for some of his kind of undeniably real accomplishments. So it is interesting that no one has quite put together the case against him, at least, at least yet. Um, However, there are other uh, campaigns that might prove more interesting this year and uh, keep people coming to our respective websites. Uh, we noted on the site City Limits today that uh, there is um, a surprising amount of out-of-state money coming in. Um, you know, not certainly the majority, but it is interesting to me that folks from West Virginia and Arkansas are donating to uh, to city candidates. And you had a very interesting story about how some candidates, some council members are approaching the financing for their respective campaigns. Right. All 51 seats in the city council are up for election this year, but there's a huge number of incumbents running for re-election. It's over 40 of the 51. It's very, very small amount of turnover expected this year. Only a few sort of quote unquote open seats of, of term limited council members. And what's happening is that there's quite a few incumbents who are actually deciding not to participate in the in the campaign finance system's public matching program. And basically why is, for a couple of reasons, but some of them sort of don't want to have to abide by the spending limits, the yearly spending limits. And if they've spent a bunch of money in the so-called out years, the non-election year, they don't want to have to have that money taken away from what they can spend in the election year. Uh, some of them, like Councilmember David Greenfield, for example, we did a separate story about how he spent many thousands of dollars to air his own radio show that he pays the station to do his weekly radio show. So he spent all that money. So he can't really participate in the in the public program, but he's also not going to face a big opponent. And a lot of these council members aren't going to have much competition. So they sort of want to just spend their campaign money however they want to spend it, whether it's 
um, you know, some of the types of materials that are now allowed to sort of spread information to constituents that are sort of borderline campaign city uh, activities like participatory budgeting. And then lastly, sort of one other key factor for the folks not participating in the public matching program is candidates for city council speaker, which will be decided by the fellow city council members, those candidates for speaker want to be able to donate a bunch of their own campaign money to council members, especially those seeking to join the council so that they may have a better shot at getting those votes for speaker in January. So that's sort of a fascinating trend line to watch. That is, yeah. I think one thing to keep in mind is that even if they don't participate, they will still have to disclose. Yes all of their spending and their um, and their contributions yes, and, and the sources. Point. So that, that is a good a good thing. But uh, it's distressing that people would opt out given that it is a fairly it, it is very complicated. The compliance requirements are are hefty, but it's pretty generous. It's a six to one six to one, right? Six to one Match. for yeah, for, for donations under or, or up to hundred seventy five dollars, the first hundred seventy five dollars from a donor. Um, so yeah, it's very generous. It helps a lot of people who don't have access to big private money and don't have big family friend networks to draw from to compete. And that's part of the idea. And Mayor de Blasio even told us for our story that, you know, he wouldn't be mayor if it wasn't for the matching program and that he uh, discourages council members from not opting in because he thinks it's an equalizing program and, you know, people should participate. Um, you know, some of the council members like Brad Lander, who again, won't face serious competition. He's sort of saying, well, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be getting matching funds anyway, because they really only give those out if you're in a competitive race. So the, there's, there's a lot of nuance here, but I think like I highlighted, one of the big questions is what are they spending their campaign money on, whether it's personal stuff like a radio show or it's giving money to other council member or candidates because you're hoping they vote for you for speaker. These are sort of questionable uses of, of some of that money, but they're not, you know, not illegal. Uh, one of the people who is actually term limited is Dan Gorodnik, and he is co-sponsor with uh, Vanessa Gibson from the Bronx on a bill that we wrote about this week called the Post Act, which is about increasing what is now an almost uh, non-existent role for the council in overseeing police use of uh, surveillance technology, which is, you know, has exploded in recent years. This bill would not restrict what the police could do. It would not involve council approval. They would simply have to disclose their purchases and provide some form for public comment on that. Um, and among the new technologies that's going to be part of that is the police body cameras, which are a fascinating kind of political issue and where people line up on that. Um, and also a, a legal issue when it comes to uh, how cases are handled. Right. We, um, we looked at one sort of, I think, undercovered aspect of the body camera debate and, and the question, you know, the mayor and the, and the police union of the largest police union, 23,000 patrol officers, part of their new contract agreement is that every patrol officer will be wearing a body camera by 2019. And so we're going to see even if they miss that deadline by some, we're going to see this huge proliferation of these cameras. They're going to capture millions of instances where police interact with civilians. Many people call for body cameras for like these major cases of alleged police abuse or actual police abuse, but it's going to be these hundreds of thousands and millions of smaller interactions, low level arrests. What happens, what's going to happen with the footage there? And that's sort of the story we looked at is questions around when that footage is made available to defendants. There's a lot of public defenders who are saying we need more access to that 
to help our clients. Um, and, and we're going to, you know, sort of see soon how that, how that plays out. Say a little bit more about the, um, surveillance bill. I mean, is that, I, I, I'm under the impression the NYPD is pushing back. They are, they are resistant to it. Yep. Um, and it's not certainly not a bill that will definitely go through. There also is an effort at the state level to uh, require police to obtain a warrant before they do any kind of gathering of, of, uh, of electronic surveillance. Um, you know, I, I recall, it, it's just interesting that we have reached this point. I recall several years ago, um, Ray Kelly testifying before the city council on a budget hearing and disclosing almost sort of as an aside that he was going to start something called the Midtown Security Initiative, uh, a network of hundreds of cameras covering dozens and dozens of, of city blocks and the council just sort of being forced to shrug about it. I think you do have an era now where people are, even on surveillance, which does get kind of bipartisan support because it, it works to everybody's advantage at some point. Um, even on surveillance, people are more willing to try to put some rules in place to require the police to at least be, be honest about it. The cops' argument is even disclosing what we're buying lets people know what our capabilities are, mm. and therefore criminals might change their tactics accordingly. That's what law enforcement always says about disclosure. Right. Uh, and in this case, I suppose that argument might win the day. I mean, it seems like, obviously, in the post-9-11 world, this is a really hot topic. And just like at the federal level, especially here in New York City, at the city level, officials want to take every measure they think necessary to keep people safe, and they don't want to have to talk a lot about it. They want to sort of use their discretion and be, you know, um, secretive about the what they're using and, and how, um, because they, you know, argue that they have New Yorkers and others' best interest at, at heart. Um, but, you know, we have seen examples and we surely will again of where some of that can get a little out of control and, you know, civil liberty groups and, and others are, you know, worried about, about some of those implications. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, civil liberties issues always offer a bright line. Um, some of the other stuff we've often talked about rezoning housing, you have to dig down a bit more into the details to get the story. And certainly East New York, where we just had the one year anniversary of the big rezoning is one of those places. The big question is, there were promises made to that neighborhood, and yesterday the mayor and city council member Espinal, who backed the rezoning, said basically the city has done its part to to deliver. Um, what's your take? Do you think that the neighborhood's getting what it bargained for? Well, I haven't been on the ground there, and we want to go to the ground there, so I think we're going to try to do that soon to really follow up on this. But we did a story a few weeks ago sort of from 30,000 feet sort of saying our community groups, is Councilmember Espinal happy with how things have followed through on? You know, we were anticipating this exact anniversary saying the East New York rezoning one year later are the promises being kept and the council member is very happy with what he's seen so far. This is the first one. They promised a lot of resources into the community and it seems like things are moving apace. One sort of flashpoint to watch there, which didn't come up, of course, in the mayor and Espinal's statement that went out, which was very glowing and excited about the progress, is part of the East New York deal was to close down two homeless shelters in that area. And now that the mayor has his new homeless shelter plan, it's very likely that there will need to be new homeless shelters in East New York and the surrounding areas. So one question is, how is that going to play out? How is that going to coincide? I asked the mayor about this recently, and he said, 
I'm not familiar with all the details of what we're going to need to do there, but we did promise to shut those down. And that was about those specific shelters. So if we're opening up new ones, you know, that's going to have to come with community input and it's a little bit of a different ball game. Maybe yes, maybe no. So that's East New York. Mm -hmm. um, what else is on the rezoning radar? So uh, other neighborhoods also um, thinking about their rezoning process in uh, Chinatown. Um, we uh, learned this week that the local community board is beginning the process to define what Chinatown is. You know, that's an area where there was a, a community organization, a coalition of organizations that put forward a, a much broader plan covering a bigger part of the neighborhood in the, in the area than the city really wants to see. And now there's been an agreement to do a kind of core Chinatown rezoning. But the borders of that area have never been defined. And so CB3 is going to begin working with the administration to do that. In East Harlem, uh, we obtained a report by a real estate investment group that basically in kind of a cheerful way um, validated many of the concerns that people on the ground have about what's going to happen to the neighborhood after rezoning, you know, investment, um, higher income, changes in the retail makeup of the neighborhood, all those fears are there. And I'm assuming that when we look at the potential rezoning of Bay Street, Staten Island, that some of those worries came out uh, during the mayor's uh, you know, satellite city hall mm -hmm. week in the town hall there last week. Yeah, I was, at, I was at the mayor's town hall in Staten Island on the North Shore last Thursday, and there were several questions about development on the North Shore and the, you know, the proposed rezoning that's in process. And the mayor, similar to East New York, sort of made the argument to the crowd that a rezoning is an opportunity. You know, it's an opportunity for a lot of new resources, a huge influx of resources into a community, whether it's new school seats, new transportation options, uh, better retail, and obviously the linchpin for him is more housing and with it more affordable housing. Um, so that's going to be interesting to watch how that plays out on, on Staten Island. And then we're also talking, speaking of City Hall in your bur borough, he was in Staten Island. They announced that the next stop will be in the Bronx in late May, and there's a, a rezoning to watch there. Uh, at least a couple. There's Jerome Avenue and potentially one on Southern Boulevard, too. And I think that statement by the mayor really goes to the heart of the disagreement, I think, that he's going to have, that he is having with some of the neighborhood groups you know, the, the idea that neighborhoods that have been deprived of resources for a long time have to basically accept a rezoning to get the infusion, there certainly is, there's a practical logic to that, there's even a policy logic that density allows you to do things at a higher scale, even just from the public fisc. But folks will definitely hear those words and say, look, um, if we've had crowded schools for 30 years, if we've had roads that are too pitted, if we've had infrastructure that's not keeping pace, you know, we shouldn't have to welcome in what in many cases would be more affluent people to get those basics of city life taken care of. And so when the mayor makes that argument, he has to be, he has to be pretty nuanced to avoid hitting some kind of tripwires that are, that are set for him. And then frankly, we're set by how other mayors handle this kind of thing. That's fascinating. I think how he frames that in the Bronx will be interesting. There's a bunch of other political dynamics for to watch in the in the Bronx, but we won't go into detail on those now. We've got some time before late May, and you know one thing that you mentioned in the work you're looking at the sort of the, the definition of Chinatown is something fascinating that I'm interested to you know see what you guys report on that fo following up. Um, Anything else you're looking at in the in the next week? Anything else we should sort of keep on our radar? You know, some developments on the, the environmental scoping process in, um, in East Harlem. 
um, and some more work on the, the garment district, which we wrote about this week, and uh, the mayor's plan to basically relocate that hub to, uh, to Brooklyn. Um, a lot of questions about where workers come from and some interesting stuff in the data, so that's on, that's on our plate. Great, yeah, and I think that garment you know, district plan both deals with sort of rezoning and it deals with the mayor's jobs plan. So it's sort of both, you know, crossing over a lot of, a lot of different areas. So we'll be watching that and a lot more. And everyone have a great Earth Day.